This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. I want to get right to it. Uh, a few quick headlines, though. The U.S. is going to pay almost $2 billion for an additional 100 million doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Uh, we heard a lot, an update from the president yesterday about having enough vaccines for all Americans by the summer. Meantime, we just had a headline crossing the CDC urging schools to reopen, saying it is critical. This is on the CDC website. Let's get back to uh, one of our favorite guests when it comes to COVID, Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, on the phone in New York City. Uh, Ian, how are you? Great. Uh, hope you guys had a good week and uh, hope things are stable over there. Yeah, fingers crossed so far uh, and kind of maybe upbeat about knowing that there's going to be enough vaccines for all Americans, but I know that's not the case around the world. How do you see it? What is it that you think we need to have front and center right now when it comes to COVID and the vaccine rollout? So we're certainly seeing uh, more vaccine enthusiasm, and we certainly have more patients who would like to be vaccinated than really vaccine is available. Uh, We're still in a situation where on Sunday we find out our state allocation for the week. So there's no question uh, what's limiting vaccines now uh, is not really enthusiasm, but it's the availability of the vaccine. That should hopefully Uh, And that reflects in many locations, including the Javits Center and other mass vaccination sites. So I think we have better uh, infrastructure to give the vaccine. We just don't have enough at this point. I believe when J&J gets approved, uh, hopefully in the next month or, you know, four to six weeks, I do foresee a time when we will have extra shots when... uh, there really will be a surplus of vaccine, and I know people who are uh, anxious to get it uh, tomorrow or next week uh, can't believe that. But I think that that will be coming in a few weeks. Well, so does that mean that the 200 million more doses that were ordered and announced yesterday by the by the Biden administration um, from uh, Pfizer and, and Moderna, does that mean that they might not necessarily be needed because we could see a vaccine approved emergency use authorization from J&J before then? That's my bet, is is that we will probably at the end of this month uh, uh, at an FDA meeting probably get uh, approval for emergency use uh, for J&J. Uh, you know, I, I have no inside information, but I would be very surprised if that doesn't happen. And so I think between... Uh, a couple of hundred million doses of uh, Pfizer uh, plus uh, Moderna that we have and more doses. I think we will have more than the 300 million uh, population uh, to to cover that, Uh, but we're not there yet. So I think we still have to plan to uh, uh, get them uh, and give them out. Hey, what's the latest when it comes to kids and vaccines? Like, you know, we, we use the term 300 million because that's the, you know, roughly the U.S. population. But that includes a lot of people who have not been approved to uh, age groups that have not been approved to receive the vaccines that are available now. Right. I can't foresee uh, people under 18 really uh, getting that. I mean, they were not in the study group. Certainly everyone older than that should uh, get the vaccine. And then I think if there's leftover vaccine or we get more research, then it might be appropriate to do that. Part of the problem really with giving all of this out or a lot of the vaccine sites are having breakdown of their 
electronic records, you know, uh, confusion and so forth, which really, to me, argues for something I've talked about for years on this show, which is the need for a universal national electronic health record, because those are working well. And to have Microsoft or other companies try to emergently figure out uh, programs, uh, we really should have been doing this for a long time for exactly these situations. But So I think there are several limitations, and I think we will eventually probably find kids younger than 18 appropriate, but they're kind of the least worrisome, and that's why we're opening schools K through 12, you know, it's, because it's, it's, that, that group is the least uh, that we are worried about in terms of bad outcome. Yeah, I, Look, I got to hit on this. You, you said the, the need for electronic medical records. I spoke yesterday to Israel's COVID-19 national experts team chair, Ron Balliser, um, and he said that one of the reasons Israel has done so well is because of the technology that they have there, the access to technology that they've had for years, the electronic medical records that they've had for years. It is not like the United States at all. There are a lot of reasons. It's really a separate show, and we should talk more about it. But there are political and economic uh, forces and private companies and a whole host of reasons why we don't have a national uh, electronic record, even though it would be helpful. There are some privacy concerns, but which can be worked around. But I think this illustrates exactly why you need that. Uh, and there will be other reasons, uh, other problems down the line. Uh, we should talk about it in more detail on another show and, and the pros and cons to it. Agreed. I want to get back to that because I agree. And, you know, listen, we have a story in the Bloomberg that talks about Microsoft and some of the stumbles that they had on New Jersey's COVID-19 vaccine booking software. I know folks in New Jersey where it has been so frustrating. And so there's technology out there, but it just feels like it's, you know, a patchwork quilt in some ways, uh, Ian. Very inefficient. And we should do better and we should have known better. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What are you going to be looking for for next week? You know, uh, vaccine delivery. I think the states uh, need to do better to get it out to various hospitals and and ultimately uh, clinics and and, and drugstores. I think if we can do that, we can really do better at bending the curve. And fortunately, cases are beginning to flatten and go down. And I I think uh, we we are rounding a corner or will be in the next few weeks. You know, one last thing, 30 seconds here. Are you comfortable? You know, Barclays, they're talking about bringing people back. Uh, Restaurants are going to be opening up in New York City, limited capacity. Just quickly, are you okay with that? I think based on our case volume, I think it is reasonable to proceed with both the restaurants at, you know, 25% or or more and definitely schools. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, me too. I know my daughter would love to get back to school. Hey, Ian, thank you so much. And yeah, we got to put on the calendar some time to talk about um, a medical record system across the country uh, and really kind of bringing the medical system and record system into the digital world. Dr. Ian Los Bader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York. Are you ready to have kind of your medical records all yeah. somewhere? Oh I know I think I have I been am. ready for years. It's 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 yeah. so hard to go from one doctor to another doctor. Oh, yeah, and I feel like, you know, they're never getting the full picture and I'm trying to remember things and it's just crazy. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, I got to say, I tweeted out this story when it crossed the Bloomberg. It's about how COVID brought booze to your door, my door, everybody's door, making maybe not your door. No, no. I, we used it. We, well, we were sent some, some booze by Drizzly. Okay. We so were we, sent I'm, some we booze partake. Too. We, have, we, have, we have partook. 
partake partake in. So it was all about the online liquor sales and delivery business because as a result of kind of the boom during the pandemic, that business is now worth billions. This story in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, which is now on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg. Let's get into it. With Tiffany Carey, she's Bloomberg News consumer reporter. She's on the phone in New York City. Uh, Tiffany, we've talked about the industries, the businesses that were hurt by the pandemic, and then we talk about those that benefited and anything to do with online booze, or it seems that way, did okay, did well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, some of the alcohol companies, they've obviously had a hard time with all the bars and restaurants being closed, but that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So here, you know, a lot of them are investing in e-commerce more, and and we're seeing these platforms that, that can deliver booze really take off. Okay, but what about the regulatory framework here? Because your story goes into some history that I really didn't know about the delivery of alcohol that goes all the way back to prohibition. Yeah, it's crazy, right? They had to break up the bootleggers, so they created this sort of three-tier system where they weren't going to have anyone own all three parts of, of the, you know, distributor, retailer, um, wholesaler chain. And so there's this legacy where no one could own all these three parts. So it's really hard to do the sort of direct-to-commerce, direct-to-consumer that we've seen in in all these other industries. It's really held uh, online sales of alcohol back. So let's talk about, because we saw, you know, Drizzly and Uber. Like, so how does this maybe change the dynamics of the players in the industry and how much this business maybe grows going forward? Well, I mean, these are big names, right? Everyone knows Uber if they don't know Drizzly. So I think it's helped bring a lot of attention to this, which is important because I think a lot of people haven't even realized that they can order alcohol online. I think there was a statistic, you know, that only 20% of people before the pandemic even realized they could order beer online. So now, you know, consumers are more aware. I think it's going to take off because really who wants to go all the way to the store just to get a six pack or a bottle of wine or, or liquor? So there's, a, there's a, a host of companies apart from Drizzly, Speakeasy, Thirsty, Bev Shop, Cask and Barrel Club, and, and Passion Spirits. And, and some of them are similar to one another. Some have minor differences. Uh, they've done pretty well throughout the pandemic. But what does it look like on the other side of the pandemic when people are saying, OK, wait a second, I'm OK with actually you know going to restaurants and, and going to bars again. Um, I'm not drinking at home as much. Well, I think people have always you know, had alcohol at home, I think people will continue to buy it online. And there's actually some interesting talk about, you know, what will happen to liquor stores here. Uh, if people don't need to go to the liquor store to buy the alcohol, if they can buy it online, like they buy their groceries, do these become like tasting rooms or something very different? But do some of these services, do they get fulfilled by your neighborhood liquor store? They do. I mean, that's what's so interesting about this because of this legacy of the three-tier model that's been around since prohibition they can't deliver it themselves so they end up going through the liquor stores so there's definitely an important role here for the small retailers it's so interesting we talked yesterday about ghost kitchens carol yeah. and the idea of, of the way that that restaurants have changed and, and not having actual you know people sit in them right now because of the pandemic i wonder so ghost liquor stores that's what i'm wondering like <laughs> listen, is that what I, we're that, gonna see i've like or from people are like oh wait you're in new jersey i can't you get so yeah. i'm gonna go to your local liquor store to have them actually deliver to you i mean that's a really good question what do you think is that what happens well a lot of these delivery services will not cross state lines just because of the law. They do have to comply with the three-tier system, even though they're sort of disrupting it in a way. 
Well, that's what I thought was interesting, that even though it sounds like it should be like direct to consumer, (laughs) it's not Tiffany, right? Like I wrote in my notes after reading your story, I'm like, there's still layers (laughs) to get that bottle of booze. You hit the button, you know, excuse me, on the website, but that doesn't mean automatically that's who's going to give you (laughs) the booze. That's right. There's a super complicated back end. And a lot of these companies, you know, they don't consider themselves delivery companies or even logistics companies. They talk about themselves as software companies. They've really used technology just to sort of solve this problem. So you go to a website, you think you're buying it from the brand. You have this sort of fluid experience as a consumer. But on the back end, the software is taking you, you know, to a different site and, and having you buy it somewhere else and have it fulfilled by the liquor store, really. Okay, so how does Thirsty come into this? It's a little different than Drizzly because Thirsty works with with major brands and and those owned by Constellation brands. And it's sort of, as you described, this this Shopify for booze. Yeah, it's a little different because with Drizzly, it's like the experience of going to a liquor store where you're seeing all the brands next to each other. But I think, you know, particularly amongst some brands that really want to stand out, they don't want the consumer to be reminded of uh, who their competitors are. So this service really lets the consumer go to, you know, that website of the, of the brand they already know they want to buy and just have that sort of seamless experience and really mimic what, what D2C does in, in other industries. You know, it's interesting. Um, I talked with the Vivino CEO and founder earlier this week. I mean, they've got 20,000 uh, installations uh, of the wow. app every day. I think they're up to about 50 million users. And they just recently did a, a capital raise of about $155 million. I mean, Tiffany, so it's interesting. I loved it when Tim went through the players. I mean, there's a lot of players out there that can do this. Do you anticipate we'll see some consolidation or further consolidation just very quickly? I would think so, yeah. All right, that was quick. (laughs) Well, bottoms up. Have a safe weekend and a good weekend. Tiffany Carey, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. Check out her story. It is in Bloomberg Business Week magazine, newsstands online on the Bloomberg. Okay, so I know you're a Vivino user because you talked about that. Have you used any of these services to to send? You know, they're good for sending gifts to people. Like if you want to send someone a bottle of champagne for an occasion. I haven't. That's That's how we got... That's how we interacted with Drizzly. That's how you did. Because it's interesting. I, I recently sent somebody flowers, but the florist local also had alcohol. You know what I mean? Like I did it and that you got way. you got to sign for it because you have to be over 21. It's complicated. Yeah. It's complicated. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So a top story this Friday, well, it's kind of a top story all the time. It's the American worker. We've certainly kept a tab on it, uh, Tim, over the pandemic because it's been really tough on a lot of workers. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you think about the toll that it's taken with us moving from offices to mm-hmm. home, reconfiguring our lives. And, and also it's like, you know, Carol, there's been a lot of research about what it's done to our day, not having a commute, you know, assuming that people would not work as much. We're working more. We are working more. And it's also, I think people are worried also about their financial security and financial well-being. So let's get into that because our next guest has some insight on that. Rob Falzen is vice chair at Prudential Financial, member at Prudential's board of directors. Rob is with us on the phone from New Jersey. So great to be talking with you again. How are you? Well, Carol, good afternoon. It's nice to catch up with you again as well. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the latest um, survey that you did of American workers. You periodically do this. What did the latest results show, Rob? Yeah, so this is actually the 11th in our series that both predates and then subsequent to the uh, to the pandemic. Um, some interesting things coming out of this most recent survey. Uh, what I found uh, most interesting, not necessarily surprising to, to me at least, but interesting is 
Um, how, you know, you think about how stress reveals cracks in foundations. Um, this stress, the economic stress and the pandemic stress that we've been going through is, is actually, uh, you know, I think revealed uh, conditions that existed well before the pandemic in terms of the lack of financial resiliency that exists with, you know, with, among, amongst American workers. In the, in the survey, over half of the individuals surveyed indicated that they recognized that since the pandemic, they actually were not well prepared going into the pandemic from the standpoint of sort of their, their own financial uh, sort of well-being. Uh, and I think that was quite interesting. So when we talk about the pandemic, it's made it much worse. So now seven in 10 are not well prepared, uh, but, but fully half those were, were not in great shape heading into the pandemic, which I think speaks to some of the foundational and fundamental things that need to be addressed. Yeah. So, so we, Rob, we talk a lot about this idea of the K-shaped recovery, that so many Americans uh, are out of work right now, and they're having a really tough time getting back to work. At the same time, we're seeing the stock market flirt with record highs, and people who are at the top end of the income spectrum are doing pretty well. And I'm wondering what you saw in your research that actually can, confirms and, and, and confirms to, to conforms to that. Well, uh, what it showed is that you know there's a there's a high level of anxiety amongst American workers, and you know if you sort of think about it, it's the broad-based American workers. So you're talking about middle America uh, in this kind of a survey. So they're you know the people who may have some level of savings, uh, but obviously insufficient based on what the survey has said. And so the, the benefit that they've received by virtue of the uplift in, in financial markets has been dwarfed by the insecurity they're feeling because of uh, around job security and benefit security and, and the reality of um, whatever they were making and saving before the pandemic hasn't been enough. Um, what I thought was, it was interesting, Tim, is um, in the survey it showed that you know, one in four had actually exhausted um, uh, or substantially depleted their emergency savings, and now uh, one in five are behind on their bills, and two-thirds said they couldn't, they could not finance a or pay for any kind of an emergency repair or you know need for cash that might come up. So I, I think there's you know there's very much this dichotomy of of uh, individuals who are who have, who have not participated in the financial markets are are actually quite vulnerable. Hey, I do wonder, Rob, too, were there any differences in terms of ages, millennials versus older workers? Yeah, interesting question, Carol. We did look at that, particularly in this survey. We looked at millennials, uh, and it was actually worse, uh, which was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. When I thought about it, perhaps not surprising. I mean, let's remember, millennials now are the biggest component of the workforce. So whatever we're seeing in the data, it's going to reflect how m- uh, millennials are, are, uh, are also experiencing the, uh, the current uh, environment. But also, when you think about where they, the millennial is um, from the standpoint of sort of the li- a life cycle, you know, they're heading into household formation, um, you know, buying homes, getting mortgages, um, raising children. Uh, and so they're at points in their career when actually um, they're at probably the most stressful points in their career in terms of their need for resiliency, yet are faced with an environment where uh, it's, you know, not, not particularly available. And I think it has them more stressed over the current circumstances than the general population. And forgive me for springing this on you too, but I am curious in terms of pulling the research and pulling it together, um, any differences when they dig a little bit deeper into um, backgrounds and demographics, blacks versus whites, like any differences there? Yeah, our, our survey didn't, we haven't parsed the data out from the survey that way. Okay. But, you know, I think it's fair to say, um, Carol, that you know, when you look at both the first order effects of the pandemic 
uh, from a health standpoint, and then the second-order effects from an economic standpoint, uh, it's been a very unequal experience in our society. Uh, and, you know, from a socioeconomic demographic standpoint, so from both a racial standpoint and, frankly, from a gender standpoint, too, one of the things we do see is um, in other surveys that we've done related to this is that, you know, women are experiencing this from a stress standpoint uh, more extremely than men are as a result of, you know, what the pandemic has done to the personal demands in the household and, you know, all the benefits of remote work. And we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Some with some of the burdens of being at home, and, and that has to do with you know the child care and home ed- and homeschooling and and uh, and you know associated activities. Yeah, you're speaking my language here, Rob. <laughs> I mean, this is something that that I'm experiencing at home, and so many of my friends are right now. Um, I, I do wonder if you had policymakers read this uh, report, what would you want their takeaway to be? Well, great question, Tim. Incidentally, yeah, I, uh, the phrase I've used is that you know, remote uh, during the pandemic has been bring your children to work for twelve months straight. So uh, <laughs> I think that's what you as many people are experiencing. The the uh, w- what we would want policy uh, makers to focus on is uh, I think an interesting piece of uh, data that came from the survey, which is that workers eight, eight in ten of them said that they yeah they expect their employers to provide benefits which help them with financial resiliency. But the same eight and 10 said they expect public policymakers to address this issue as well. And I think that's, it's being thoughtful on the part of the American worker. They're saying, you know, we want policymakers to make it easier um, for companies to provide us benefits, easier for us to utilize those benefits and, you know, make the benefits more comprehensive. And I think there's a, there's a large agenda of, of work that's, I think, in front of the country where we have a national opportunity uh, instead of just sort of coming back from the pandemic and the recession, to actually come back better, to construct something that is more inclusive, more integrated from a benefit standpoint, includes portability and a lot of features that I think, um, that, as I think about this, would help to right. us for crises instead of focusing on how we repair ourselves out of crises. Right, that taking benefits if you leave your employer, that's something that our European colleagues say, you know, that happens over in Europe and it's something that we're behind on, or at least that seems to be the view. Rob, thank you so much. Have a good week. And Rob Falzen, he's vice chair over at Prudential Financial. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. This is our most read story on the Bloomberg today. It's about the immigrant kid who is now worth billions. Uh, I love how Eric writes this, the Pied Piper of today's blank check check craze. Um, Let's get more on who we are talking about, what he had to say. Bloomberg News Editor-at-Large, Eric Schatzker, caught up with Chamath Paliapatiya. He did this for another front row segment, and it can be found on the Bloomberg Terminal. Hey, Eric, good to have you here with us. Tell us about Chamath. Uh, and that is what we should call him. Carol, he is a man who has risen, let's say, to the point where he is known by his first name, kind of like Jamie is in Jamie Diamond, Ray is in Ray Dalio. Now we know Chamath is in Chamath Palhapatia. Um, what can I tell you about Chamath? The man is everywhere. You saw him in the middle of the GameStop frenzy. He is the king of SPACs. He was rumored to be running for governor of California, speculation on which he has since poured some cold water. But he has a knack for finding populist momentum, and he's right in the middle of it all. And, and Eric, one thing that you point out is that this is this is like his his third act, right? I mean, it was Facebook, and then it was uh, he was essentially a, a venture capitalist, and it didn't go so well. Well, he was a very successful venture capitalist and managed uh, by being Chamath 
to alienate some of his partners and some of his investors, and he decided to go it alone. People called him down and out, flamed out, if you will, back in 2018, and he has since reinvented himself uh, as the Pied Piper of the SPAC craze and become vastly wealthier. I should add that it's not all SPACs. He has been uh, a very prescient investor, bought Bitcoin in 2012 and held, bought Amazon in 2014 and held, bought Tesla convertible debt and converted it to common stock and held. He told me, you know what Tesla's trading at right now. He told me that his entry price on Tesla is something in the order of $25. So you can do the math. Um, And It's at over 800 today. Yeah. Yeah, he's a fascinating character because he cloaks himself in the the language, if you will, of populism. He says he wants to break down entrenched hierarchies. He wants to eliminate inequality. He says the only two things that matter to him ultimately are inequality and climate change. And everything that his umbrella organization, let's call it social capital, is doing mm. is with an eye towards solving those problems in the long run. And it sounds very altruistic, and perhaps it is, but he exposes himself to criticism at the same time because one could fairly ask, well, what does Virgin Galactic, right, the space travel company started by Richard Branson, which is now the first company he acquired with his SPAC, what does that have to do with inequality, and what does that have to do with climate change? On the face of it, nothing, of course. Well, and listen, the headline on his story that certainly caught our attention, I mean, he talks about wanting to be the next Warren, as in Warren Buffett. Let's let's just play a little clip at Eric, uh, clip it, a little clip, Eric, of your interview with Chamath. Check it out, everybody. I do want to have a Berkshire-like instrument that is all things, you know, I mean, not to sound egotistical, but all things Chamath, all things social capital. Look, I mean, I was the one that backed up the truck in 2012 on Bitcoin. You know, 2014 and 15 in Amazon, 2015 in Tesla. Um, you know, these SPACs are doing well. Um, you know, uh, I can be a little judgmental at times, but I'm a good decision maker. And um, I think I know where the world's roughly going. And I want to translate that. I've made enough money for myself. It doesn't really fill up my boat. Um, I do it as a demarcation of success and to keep the pressure on. But the best pressure for me was if I, you know, was was an instrument that retail, normal, ordinary folks could use to close the inequality gap for themselves. And that is, of course, Chamath Palihapitiya with our own Eric Schatzker. So talk to us about what he said about Buffett a little bit more. Well, he calls Buffett the goat, right, the greatest of yeah. all time. In, uh, you know, in, 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 in modern speak, let's say. And he says Buffett is too old. People aren't going to listen to Buffett anymore. Somebody needs to take that baton. Somebody needs to inherit Buffett's mantle. And he wants to be that person because when he looks at Berkshire Hathaway, he sees a company that has not only been extraordinarily su- su- successful and representative of the investing acumen of Buffett, but something that has created generational wealth for people who were in in the early days. And he wants social capital to be something similar, something, as he said, that can close the inequality gap by allowing people to pay off their student loans and things of the like because of the wealth that they'll accumulate as owners. And so that's why he wants to take all of the interests that he has now under this social capital umbrella, 
which as he told me, you're sloshing around in a bunch of LLCs, reorganize it into a proper conglomerate, and then list it publicly where people can actually buy the stock. The one unanswered question there, of course, is when it goes public, will it go public as a SPAC? Hmm. Or will it go public in a proper IPO or even a direct listing? It's a couple of years away, he said, and so we, we probably won't see the next, you know, the next, let's say, page in that chapter for a little while. But what, look, you heard it. The man has ambition. He thinks big. So what and does that he include? Delivered, he delivered that ambition in a very sort of calm and direct way. If you were to listen to him on his podcast, the one that he does with his poker playing buddies, yeah. he'd be dropping f bombs. They'd call him the dictator. It's a very, it's a very different style of delivery. Just wish he had a little bit of confidence, Eric. I'm just going to say, <laughs> Eric Shatsky, you have a great weekend. Editor at large, Bloomberg News. Check out his interview with Chamath Palihapitiya. It is a front row. It's on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.